And uh, please turn back in the uh, church Bibles to page 886 to Daniel chapter 3, page 886. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit, that through your written word we might understand more of the living word, the Lord Jesus, and that our confidence may be in him in the days and months that lie ahead. For your name's sake. Amen. Well, Sapur Murat Niazov was president of Turkmenistan, uh, first president of Turkmenistan, he died uh, just a few months ago, in December last year. And his 16 years in office were a perfect illustration of Lord Acton's famous maxim, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now there have, of course, have been many other eccentric, egocentric, megalomaniac leaders throughout history, but in recent years at least, it's difficult to find another as egotistical and unhinged as Niazov. Not content with naming himself as father and leader of all Turkmens, he renamed the month of January after himself. He actually named the month of April after his mother. He banned ballet, gold teeth, recorded music. He ordered the construction of a lake in the middle of a desert and a ski resort on the snowless foothills of the Iranian border. He built his own theme park. He even wrote his own sacred religious text, the Book of the Soul. And the Book of the Soul was, of course, compulsory reading for all. Indeed, you even had to answer questions on your driving test on the Book of the Soul. Unsurprisingly, the country was littered with pictures and statues of the president. Most self-indulgently, the huge gold statue of Niazov in the capital itself. Standing on top of the capital's tallest building, the 75-meter-high neutrality arch, the gold statue of Niazov rotated 360 degrees every day so that Niazov's image would always face the sun and shine a golden light onto the city. Of course, his rule, like other authoritarian despots down through history, was unforgiving and brutal. Informants from the secret police infiltrated all levels of society and dissenters were invariably met with swift punishment. They were arrested they were tortured, they were incarcerated within psychiatric institutions and Christians among them too. For power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, so too it seems with the 6th century BC Babylonian ruler Nebuchadnezzar. You might imagine after the remarkable events of chapter 2, the remarkable experience of unspoken dreams retold and interpreted, you might imagine that those events might have humbled him. But actually chapter 3 tells a very different story. The story of an arrogant and unforgiving leader whose rule was absolute and tyrannous. 
Uh, You remember that in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of a large statue with a head of gold. A statue that actually spoke of his passing rule and God's eternal rule. And yet in chapter 3, he constructs a huge gold statue. 90 feet. And he commands universal and unquestioning worship of this, his God. See, the call comes in verse 2. And the call was to the ruling elite, the sort of movers and shakers in society. He summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. And doubtless fearing for their lives, verse 3, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled. Now, his was an invitation that you couldn't refuse if you wanted to keep your life. And so Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar issues his command, verse 4. This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down. You must fall down and worship the image of the gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. For whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace I suspect that it's difficult for those of us and that will be most of us it's difficult for those of us who haven't lived under such a totalitarian ruler like Nezav or Nebuchadnezzar it's difficult to imagine just how terrifying such an experience must have been see non-compliance didn't mean open and democratic discussion it meant death When President Nezov was democratically elected in 1992, he was the only candidate. When he was re-elected in 1994, 99.9% of the electorate voted in favour of extending his presidency. No surprises there then. And when Nebuchadnezzar commanded worship of the statue of this God, compliance was absolute, verse 7. As soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, all the peoples, nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of God that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. No surprises there either. And yet terrifying though this was, the first thing I think to note from Daniel chapter 3 is this. Understand the utter stupidity of idolatry. Understand the utter stupidity of idolatry. You see, note the writer's repetition throughout this chapter. It's a highly stylized account. And you get a repetition of a phrase right through the chapter. So Nebuchadnezzar did what? End of verse 1. He set up his statue. Or the end of verse 2, he set up his statue. Or the end of verse 3, he set up his statue. Or verse 4, or verse 5, or verse 6, or verse 7. Do you think that the writer was trying to make a point? But then why does this repetition, repetition of Nebuchadnezzar setting up his statue, why does that illustrate the stupidity of idolatry? Well, if you just flick back to chapter 2 and verse 44, you'll discover the answer. 
You see, whatever idols the world sets up and worships, and however popular such idols are, whatever idols the world sets up and worships, chapter 2 and verse 44, the God of heaven will, and indeed in Jesus has, the God of heaven will, and then you get the repetition of the same phrase, will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. So you see, the writer is telling us, his readers, that you are an absolute idiot if you fall down and worship anything else other than this God because his is the only kingdom that will last. So today, you can actually see bits of what is left of Nebuchadnezzar's great kingdom if you visit the British Museum. And it's not very much. It's funny, there's an old friend who's here this morning who actually took me round the British Museum to show me these things. Very interesting. But actually, what you can see left of Nebuchadnezzar's reign are a few building bricks and a cylinder with his name inscribed on them. Of course, it's far easier to see other people's stupidity. It's much more difficult to see your own, isn't it? As John Calvin once commented, the human heart is a factory of idols. And the truth is, even uncoerced, most of us will still worship things no less ridiculous than a golden statue in the Babylonian desert. To paraphrase Chesterton, when people stop worshipping the God of the Bible, they don't worship nothing, they worship anything. So at the beginning of the 21st century, doctors have identified a new condition, the celebrity worship syndrome. Research from Leicester University has indicated that up to 16% of us are so obsessed with celebrity, it has an impact on our life. One in ten has intense feelings for a star, and a scary 1% are borderline pathological. And we think they were stupid in Daniel 3. The philosopher Roger Scrutton put it like this in one of his books. He says, we have gods of a kind flitting below the surface of our passions. You can glimpse Gaia, the earth goddess, in the crazier rhetoric of the environmentalists. Fox and deer are totemic spirits for the defenders of animal rights whose religion was shaped by the kitsch of Walt Disney. The human genome has a mystical standing in the eyes of many medical scientists. We have cults like football. Sacrificial offerings like Princess Diana and improvised saints like Linda McCartney. And whatever grips our heart, whatever grips our heart, be it celebrities or money or status or success or sport or family, whatever idols we set up and worship, the Bible reminds us that it is utterly stupid. For in Jesus, the God of heaven has set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And so we are utter fools to worship anything or anyone else. Secondly, recognize the overwhelming pressure to compromise. Recognize the overwhelming pressure to compromise. You see, the truth is... It is difficult to swim against the tide of prevailing ideologies in any age or culture. It may not be a fiery furnace, for most of us in this country at least, 
But try speaking about the truth of Christianity in any context. In the, in the office or with unbelieving family members or in the classroom. Try speaking about Christianity as true. True truth, not personal preference. Try explaining that Jesus claims to be the only way to be right with God. Point out his warnings of future judgment and his teachings about the reality of our guilt and the universal need for repentance. Try speaking in those terms and you will soon feel the heat of people's disapproval. See, the English like their truth like their tea. Generally weak and above all a matter of personal preference. Well, however difficult it might be for us to make a stand against the prevailing culture and pressure of our day, it was even more difficult for these three young Jewish exiles working in Nebuchadnezzar's government. And and that, as you read through the chapter, makes their resistance all the more remarkable. Well, the statue dedication is over, and after a considerable amount of time, all the musical instruments are packed away, and a deputation of somewhat obsequious astrologers pitches up for a royal audience, verse 8. And on the surface of it, their concern is the failure of certain Jews to worship Nebuchadnezzar's gods. Though you suspect the complaint had more to do with personal pique than religious principle. After all, chapter 2, when it came to dream interpretation, they'd received the Alan Sugar treatment. You can't tell me my dream? You're fired. See, they had been outclassed and outinterpreted by a bunch of foreigners from Judah. Well, unsurprisingly, Daniel's friends are summoned by a king who's clearly not used to dissent, verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so these three men are brought before the king. Now, of course, always the difficulty with any Old Testament narrative like this is that it's actually very hard to rescue its impact from Sunday school sentiment and the familiarity that breeds contempt. It's very difficult because it's so familiar. When you read verse 13, you should be on the edge of your seat. Why? Because we've already been told, verse 6, that anyone who didn't worship Nebuchadnezzar's statue would be immediately thrown into a burning furnace. So you are waiting for the inevitable, the brutal implementation of maniacal justice. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego stand before the king and there's a question and an offer and a threat. Now, of course, the question in verse 14 is not really a question, is it? It's more likely an expression of incredulity than an attempt to establish the veracity of the astrologer's charge. Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Is it really true? Now, with the questioning over, the trial such as it is, is over, and the defendant's guilt apparently established, Nebuchadnezzar makes an offer. And on the surface of it, Nebuchadnezzar wants Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down to his God. But do note, will you, that the God he actually wants them to worship isn't really the gold statue at all. It's the God of relativism. You see, Nebuchadnezzar knows that these three are Daniel's friends. He knows that they worship 
the God of gods and the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. He knows that, yet he doesn't say that they have to stop bowing down to their God. The only thing they have to do is to bow down to his gods as well. And if they do that, verse 15, it will be very good. See, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Look, nobody is saying that you Christians can't worship Jesus. It's, it's true for you, and that's great. But, you know, truth is different for different people. And you Christians, you need to acknowledge that. As Rudyard Kipling put it, many roads thou hast fashioned, all of them lead to the light. You Christians, you've you just got to stop insisting that Jesus is somehow unique because that is just not on. See, we'll tolerate everything, but we won't tolerate that. The journalist Joan Bakewell put it like this. All the religions of the world are real in that they exist in the minds and spirits of the people who hold them. I don't think that Jesus rose from the dead. But I don't go around saying he didn't. I don't have to dismantle it for people who hold those views. I just say it's not for me. I'm quite comfortable with that. And so would he be if he could hear me. You see, that's it, isn't it? Yes, you can bow down to Jesus if you want, but you just have to bow down to my God too. And my God is the God that reduces all truth claims to matters of personal preference. Challenge that. Speak about a Jesus in time, space, history, a real death, a real resurrection, a real judgment. Speak about the gospel as true truth and you will soon discover the one thing that won't be tolerated. Some of you will have heard me use this illustration before, but it fits so well with this. Forgive me for repeating it. I was on a post-ordination training course uh, with an interesting sort of training that the Church of England sets up for curates. And uh, I was talking with a clergy colleague, and we were talking, got on to discussion about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and his claim to be the only way to be right with God. And she was increasingly, over the course of conversation, irritated to the point of being incandescent with rage. And eventually she said to me, I cannot believe that you can seriously approach other people on the basis that they are wrong. To which I said to her, well, you don't seem to have a great deal of problem doing that with me, do you? You see, as long as we bow down to the God of relativism, you can carry on believing in Jesus. But the moment you suggest that there is, as Schaefer put it, something that is true truth, events in time, space, history, that shape the whole of eternity, you will find the one thing that will not be tolerated. Nebuchadnezzar's question, his offer, and then his rather sinister threat comes at the end of verse 15. If you do not worship it, my God, if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And with the threat, there's the smug confidence of all human arrogance. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? 
You see, we do need to recognise the overwhelming pressure to compromise. It's so easy in the office, with unbelieving family, with neighbours, it's so easy to talk about the Christian faith as private preference rather than public truth. Because when you talk about Christianity as true, it forces people to engage with it personally in a way that is very unsettling. I remember talking with a wedding couple coming and interested in getting married here, and I was talking about Christianity and always deliberately refer to the Christian message as being something that is true truth. And I carried on, and then he suddenly stopped me, the groom-to-be. He said, can I just ask you a question? He said, what did you mean by Christianity being true truth? And he, of course, had fallen for it, hook, line, and sinker, that it's just about personal preference. And suddenly... There was a discussion about Christianity being really true. And it meant he had to engage with the whole issue. Because if Jesus is just a matter of personal preference, then I can just get on with my life without having to be unduly troubled with his claims. But if the claim is whether Jesus really lived, died and rose, and whether he really does command me to repent, if that's the claim, then I have to own a position, don't I? It's either false or it's true. It it can't be both. And if these things are really true, then whatever the gods of this age, there is only one God who should be worshipped. Understand the utter stupidity of idolatry. Recognise the overwhelming pressure to compromise and finally worship the only God who can deliver. Worship the only God who can deliver. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are actually, I think, Old Testament models of believers who are always willing to give an answer for the hope that they have, but they do so with gentleness and respect. See, they are are respectful, and yet they're also resolute. You see, they do address Nebuchadnezzar as king, verse 18. And yet, verse 16, the way they address the king is actually very different from their astrologer accusers. See, back in verse 9, the astrologers astrologers address Nebuchadnezzar like this, O king, live forever. But there's only one king who will live forever. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. You see, they willingly served an earthly ruler, even a pagan, godless despot like Nebuchadnezzar, but they knew that ultimately they were not answerable to him, but to a higher throne. And what was true for them is also true for us. Now, I don't know about you, but I find the words of these three men incredibly moving and humbling and inspiring. Verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O King. The Lord can bring earthly deliverance, and he will bring eternal deliverance. But even if he doesn't bring earthly deliverance, the resolve of these three men, verse 18, is that we want you to know, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. See, there's, there's, there's biblical realism and biblical courage here. For the Lord never promises believers they will be spared all suffering, even suffering in defense of the gospel. 
But he will rescue in the end. Not from the vengeful and capricious judgment of a Nebuchadnezzar, but from the perfect justice of a holy God. And the more we understand that, the more we are committed to living out the implications of God's real eternal judgment, the greater will be our allegiance to the King of Kings. Now, because what follows this brave and inspiring confession is a, is a gut-wrenching account that leaves you reeling. The uncontrolled rage of a tyrant defied, a dictator who has so lost touch with any true sense of proportion, still less justice, that he's happy for people to fall by the wayside as he executes his justice. A madman who commands an, commands an execution furnace so powerful that even his strongest soldiers are killed in its production. And it is into this hellish funeral pyre that these three faithful believers are thrown. And of course what follows is miraculous. It is miraculous. It is extraordinary. It's unique even in the Bible. But you know, surely the God who made the heavens and the earth Surely the God who made the universe in all its vastness, surely a God like that is able to rescue his people in such a dramatic way, even if he never promises to. The God we serve is able to save us. So what do you learn from this extraordinary biblical account? Well, we learn again that God is able to deliver his people and confound their enemies. And that should strengthen our hearts to worship this God alone. See, end of verse 6, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. See, God's deliverance of his people is, is total, is comprehensive. The flames that killed even Nebuchadnezzar's strongest men don't even touch these three. And this extraordinary rescue is even acknowledged by God's enemies. And so it will be on the last day. For on the last day, every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For on that last day, whether willingly or defiantly, on the last day the whole world will acknowledge that through his death, Jesus secured an even greater deliverance for his people than the one that is recorded here in Daniel 3. And on that day, all creation will echo with the words of this pagan king in verse 28. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who has sent not just his angel but his son and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Understand the utter stupidity of idolatry. Recognize the overwhelming pressure to compromise and worship the only God who can deliver. Last weekend we were in Oxford and uh, I was showing the children the Martyrs Memorial, the monument commemorating the deaths of the three 16th century bishops, Latimer, Ridley and Cramner. It's a strange experience to be by the monument and 
the tourists are kind of milling around in Oxford and there's the Odeon Cinema over there. And on the top of the monument, of course, Cranmer stands holding a Bible. And of course, they were burned at the stake on the orders of Queen Mary. Their crime? Trusting that the death of Jesus Christ was the only thing that secured their eternal forgiveness. And whilst in prison, the bishops were under extraordinary pressure to compromise their faith. And actually under pressure, of course, Cramner actually signed a confession effectively renouncing his faith. But he was burnt at the stake regardless. Yet his dying words, I think, are a reminder of the message of Daniel 3, that there is a higher throne before which all of us will one day be called to an account Cramner is recorded as saying these words, O Father, have mercy on me, most miserable sinner. I have offended against both heaven and earth and more than I can say. Have mercy on me for your great mercy. And then facing the crowd, he says this, I I desire to speak a few words before I die by which God might be glorified and you might be instructed in the faith. And now I come to the great thing which troubles my conscience more than anything I ever did in my whole life. I now renounce the things written with my hand against the truth in my heart. I feared death. I wrote the recantation to save my life. And because my hand has offended, Writing against my heart, therefore my hand shall be punished first, for when I come to the fire, it shall be burned first. And of course, so it was for Cramner. Understand the utter stupidity of idolatry. Recognize the overwhelming pressure to compromise. And worship the only God who can deliver. Let's pray, shall we? We've already prayed one of Cramner's prayers. But just as we finish, let me pray another famous prayer that he wrote. 